The following KOPN podcast is made possible by the generous donations of listeners like you. Please consider a donation to listener-supported community radio, KOPN. You can donate securely on our website at kopn.org. Hi, welcome to Food Sleuth Radio, where we help you think beyond your plate. I'm Melinda Hemmelgarn, a registered dietitian and investigative nutritionist on a mission to connect the dots between food, health, and agriculture and find food truth. And today I'm honored to welcome my guest, a fellow registered dietitian, Kelly Trenum. She is a registered dietitian, but she has a specialty in oncology. She works at the Multicare Regional Cancer Center in Tacoma, Washington. She holds a bachelor's degree in biochemistry from North Carolina State University and a master's in food nutrition from the University of Georgia. She is currently the chair-elect for the Oncology Nutrition Dietetic Practice Group of the Academy of Nutrition and Dietetics, and she recently presented at our annual conference in Nashville on the topic of medical cannabis and oncology patients, a bioethics approach to a crucial conversation. It was a unique and spellbinding lecture, and I wanted to have her on the program. So welcome, Kalei. Oh, thank you so much for having me. You know, all of us in dietetics, it seems that we take different paths, and there are so many paths to take as a dietitian. How did you get involved in working with cancer patients specifically? I first recognized an enjoyment of that when I did a little bit of work with hospice at a hospital I worked for in California. And a lot of those patients were cancer patients, and they were still struggling with some of the effects of treatment, even though they were no longer on treatment, so nausea, appetite changes, weight loss. And I really enjoyed that work, and that's kind of what led me into working with cancer patients. Mm-hmm. And we had had a conversation before in preparing for this interview where you mentioned how not every patient has the opportunity to meet with a dietitian, and that's really unfortunate. And I hope that we can talk a little bit about how to direct patients to get the high-quality care that those with an individual specialty can provide. That's true. There's no standard for, in the outpatient setting, I should say, there's no standard for having a dietitian. There's no requirement. Some centers may be accredited by bodies that very much encourage or possibly require dietitians to be on staff, but not every clinic that does cancer care or every small community based cancer center has to have a dietitian or is accredited so that they're very much encouraged to do that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's unfortunate because I think, as you mentioned during your talk, registered dietitians seem to be really uniquely suited not only to talk about diet, but also some of these alternative preparations that they may take, whether they're getting things over the counter, herbal supplements, marijuana, you know, you name it. And I think that oftentimes patients have a greater comfort level in talking to dietitians perhaps than, say, their physicians. Maybe the doctor doesn't have as much time, but the dietitian can walk through some of the symptoms that they have. And I want to focus for a moment on some of those symptoms that we've seen. I, too, worked with cancer patients early in my career, and I remember there were symptoms that related to radiation, symptoms that related to chemotherapy, But tell me more specifically what you find in your patients directly related to treatment and management of their cancers. Absolutely. One of the most probably prevalent things that people deal with is nausea, which can lead to vomiting. 
and then not feeling like eating because you're afraid to eat. You're afraid that eating something might actually induce vomiting. So that's a big one, particularly with chemotherapy. It can also occur when radiation therapy is directed at the gut. I think we also see quite a bit of appetite changes, and those can even have been occurring before someone was even diagnosed with cancer. They can have lost their appetite, not really know why, and then subsequently be diagnosed. And then appetite issues can continue because chemotherapy can taste changes, which doesn't make eating very pleasant. Mm-hmm. Other things that our patients deal with that have a less direct impact, but certainly an impact on their nutritional status, include pain, fatigue, insomnia. And when you're in pain or you're very tired or you're not sleeping well, you don't really want to get up and prepare food or go out and shop and do things like that. So there's that indirect link to poor nutritional intake. Mm -hmm. How long have we known about the medical benefits of cannabis or marijuana? I have to guess a little bit at that, but I know that since the 70s, people began to start recognizing that it may have a benefit. And I think it really started to burst onto the scene with HIV care and the nausea and vomiting and rapid weight loss and appetite difficulties that HIV patients had in the early to mid-80s. And that's a place where cannabis began being used for those types of symptoms. And then subsequently, people said, well, if it works for their nausea, perhaps it would work for my chemotherapy-induced nausea. Mm-hmm. And you are living in Washington, so we know that there are 23 states now within the U.S., plus the District of Columbia, that allow for medical cannabis. So you're lucky in that you can work with patients who can legally use it to help them feel better. What have you witnessed in the clinical setting? Do you find that patients are using marijuana and benefiting from it? Are there any downsides? Share with us your experience. Sure. I do see that people are using it, and I believe that because it is medically legal in the state of Washington and has been for quite some time, that patients are more open to talking about it. I appreciate something you said earlier about dietitians perhaps being the member of the healthcare team that patients are more comfortable talking with about both natural medicines and cannabis as a natural medicine. And I find sometimes that my patients kind of check in. And usually they'll do that by saying, what about medical marijuana? And that's more common lingo among patients to use that term. But I usually kind of throw it back at them and say, what about it? What are you asking? And I think they get a feeling then that there's an open dialogue available. And from what I hear from patients, it it has helped them with nausea. It has improved appetite. It does sometimes help with pain. It helps them to sleep and to relax. So I'm hearing that from quite a few people. Mm-hmm. And do they need a prescription then from their health care provider in order to go to a medical dispensary? In the state of Washington, what's required, and in many states what's required, is that people have some kind of documentation indicating that they have a qualifying condition. So different states will actually have different listings of what is considered a qualifying condition. Nearly every state includes cancer HIV, glaucoma, for example, those are the big ones that nearly every state will include as a qualifying condition. In Washington, there's some specific paperwork that people get and have, and what it provides in the state of Washington is what's called an affirmative defense. 
So they could still potentially be arrested per, for possession, but once they get to court, if they have that paperwork and it was done prior to their altercation, then they're able to have what, that affirmative defense and say, hey, I'm a medical user. Are there any contraindications, say, for if you're taking one drug, would there be, you know, we talk a lot of times about drug and food interactions or medical interactions where one medication interacts with another. Sometimes we warn patients against taking herbal supplements because there might be an interaction with a drug. Have you seen any data in the literature that would look to those kinds of contraindications? I have seen a short list of medications that when cannabis is used orally, the way that they're metabolized in the liver may be some competition. And so actually there's some medications that are, if they're being taken at the same time that cannabis is being taken orally, the cannabis effects can be enhanced or increased. And a few of those I know are antifungals, there's an antibiotic, there's a couple of heart medications. So there are a few things like that. But I also think there's a lot we don't know because we haven't really been able to widely study cannabis due to the federal regulations. Yeah. It seems unfortunate only because of the potential benefit that it could have for people who are so sick. I I once heard a physician speak about nausea in particular, and he said, if you think pain is bad, nausea is far worse. And, you know, the thing that you said about once you throw something up, there's an aversion to that food that lasts for a long time. So it really can't, nausea and vomiting can impede future nutritional status as well as just feeling miserable at the time you're experiencing it. Now I want to ask a little bit about if somebody wants to investigate the use of cannabis, are there certain strains that are better than another and how do we learn more about it? Sure. There are different strains with different names of cannabis out there. I won't tell you that I'm by any means an expert in that area. I think the main differences in those different strains may be in the content of some of the active cannabinoid constituents, the two primary ones being THC and CBD, or tetrahydrocannabinol and cannabidiol. And those have specific effects that people are looking for with respect to either mitigation of nausea or pain And so the strains may have different combinations or quantities of those relative to each other. And probably one of the best resources out there right now is a book called Cannabis Pharmacy, Mm -hmm. written by Michael Backus. And that's something that was recommended to me by a physician who's been doing research in the area for a number of years now. And it's something that I recommend my patients get. If they're choosing to use medical cannabis, I'll say, well, for your information, this is a really excellent, well-written, well-referenced book for you to have on your shelf. And do most of the medical dispensaries offer the strains that might be identified in the cannabis pharmacy? Well, not being a user myself, I haven't visited dispensaries. So I don't know for sure how widely available some of the strains that might be mentioned in there are. But there's quite a few of them, and it would at least give somebody a talking point to go into a dispensary and say, I've heard that this strain or that strain may actually be helpful for what I'm looking for. You carry any of these. Right. So it at least gives them a place to start a discussion when they walk into a dispensary for the first time. 
Yeah, I think that's a really good point. I mean, similar to going to the grocery store, if you don't see what you'd like to have, you know, you ask the manager to have it or to carry it in the future. So there can be some influence working both ways to have a more suitable variety that might be beneficial. One of the things that you spoke about during your conference presentation that I thought was so interesting was you did a survey of nursing students' bias. So when a patient comes in, maybe they're a little hesitant to ask about it. And then if you've got a medical provider on the other side of the conversation who has a perception about you because you asked, that could set up an uncomfortable dynamic for the rest of the patient's treatment course. So tell me a little bit about the research that you did and what you found. You know, what I actually did was a classroom exercise. I have a a nurse who teaches periodically a palliative care nursing class in the Tacoma area, and I often help her facilitate her course on clinical bioethics analysis, uh, where we go through clinical ethics case studies and teach the students just a little bit about what, what it's like to do an ethical analysis of a situation. And with that as sort of the pretext that we were going to do a clinical ethical analysis on a concept in medical care, we asked the students, Before we told them the concept was medical cannabis, we said, as soon as we tell you the concept, we want you to start calling out what your biases are. And they had done that in previous classes with this particular instructor. So we then said, here's the concept, medical cannabis. Tell us what your biases are. And they called off a number of things. And I think, you know, as you and I had spoken about, it was kind of shocking to know that most of those things were pretty negative. They were pretty negative connotations. Yeah, and these were, I'm I'm assuming that most of the students were young. You know, actually, they there was a wide variety of ages in there. I would say the age range was from 20s to 40s, and some of them, you know, this would be a first career, and for some of them, it might have been a second career, and so a wide variety of backgrounds. Some of them had been working, for example, as certified nursing assistants or paramedics, and some of them had not been working at all, ever, in healthcare. So I I thought that's interesting in particular because you have a really wide variety of ages and experience. Right. Let me just remind our listeners, if you're just joining us, you are tuned into Food Sleuth Radio, and we are speaking with Calais Trenum. She is a fellow registered dietitian. Her specialty is oncology, and she works at the Multicare Regional Cancer Center in Tacoma, Washington, where medical cannabis is legal, and she has had experience working with medical oncology patients, and her presentation at the Academy of Nutrition and Dietetics conference this fall was on the topic of medical cannabis and oncology patients, a bioethics approach to a crucial conversation. I want to continue our discussion about bioethics because you have to wonder where people's preconceived notions about some of these uses lie. And I remember you went through a list of some of the things that these nursing students said, like they thought that people who used cannabis were lazy or stoners, when really when a patient comes in with nausea and vomiting, that's the last thing you want is to have one of your medical care providers have a negative connotation about you. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I mean, I think patients are very fearful of that. I think that one of the things I really have to encourage people to do sometimes is to allow us to make the fact that they're using medical cannabis a part of their medical record so that if anything were to happen to them and they weren't able to tell us all different things that they were using and taking to deal with their symptoms, whether it's 
prescription medications or whether it was cannabis, you know, I have to get them to really understand, hey, we don't want to work in the dark if anything happens to you. We need to know what's going on and everything that you're using. But it, it, it's definitely not, you don't want to be a cancer patient and talking to a nurse or a physician or a pharmacist and feel like you can't ask them a question about using medical cannabis and that you're going to be judged. Nobody wants to be in that position. They're just trying their best to feel as good as they can while they're dealing with all the side effects of their treatment. And that's really one of the reasons why I was so intrigued by your presentation and wanted to have you on, because I felt like you came from such a place of compassion and wanting to improve the quality of people's lives, which is why I think dietitians become dietitians in the first place. Well, one of the things that you mentioned in terms of your recommendations to patients who want to try it out, I thought was just so based in good common sense, and that was you want to start low and go slow. And so how much time do you allow Talk to me a little bit about timing of the dose and when a patient might expect to feel better. Sure. That actually is dependent on the route by which a patient elects to use cannabis. And so that's, I think that, like you said, that's really good basic information to give people as they're trying to make a decision on whether to use it and how to use it. And when cannabis is taken via an inhalation type of route, whether it's through a vaporizer or whether they smoke it, the onset of the effect of it is seconds to minutes. It's, it's quite fast. And the duration of it is only a few hours. So if they do experience psychoactive effects or rapid heart rate or some of those types of side effects that make them uncomfortable, then they're not going to have to suffer through that for very long, especially when you have somebody who's naive and they've never used it and they don't really know what they could experience. Whereas a lot of people assume the best thing to do is use edibles and take it via the oral route, that can take between 30 minutes and two hours before it takes effect, and the duration of those effects can be quite a bit longer, five you know, to six hours. So I just think it's helpful for people to know that before going in so that they kind of have a little bit better idea of what to expect. Yeah, you know, it's really interesting when you mentioned edibles. I was thinking about some of the other nutrients that we get through food and how some of them are better absorbed if they're taken with, say, in an aqueous or through with a water solution versus mm-hmm. ones that are better carried with fat. And I wonder about the edible cannabis preparations. Are we better off having them with, you know, taking it with a full stomach? Do we want to have a liquid preparation versus something that has higher fat? Do you notice a difference in effectiveness with the different kinds of forms that it could be in food or drink? You know, it's my understanding from the research that's out there that the cannabinoids are fat-soluble items or compounds, I should say. And so you really do need to extract them into a fat. They also can be extracted into alcohol-type solutions, ethanol, and that's where tinctures are often used. But putting cannabis leaves into the blender, for example, with a bunch of fruit and no source of fat is is not going to be as helpful. You're you're probably not going to absorb much, if any, of the cannabinoids doing that. They also require some heat in order to be better activated. And so a lot of edibles come in the form of baked goods where the compounds are extracted into oils or butters coconut oil, for example, and then used to make baked goods. And again, the fact that it needs a fat and that 
baking it at a higher temperature helps activate the compounds is, is why those are common routes. Yeah, yet again, another reason why a dietitian is so key in addressing how we use medicines and foods and herbs and how they all interact. Is there anything else that you want our listeners to specifically know about the potential benefits um, or risks in using cannabis in the treatment of cancer or using it to prevent some of the negative side effects of treatment? Sure. I think that one of the things a lot of patients are inquiring about, we're seeing a lot of information out on the web, is whether cannabis might actually be a curative mechanism for cancer. And what I would say is that right now, based on the data that we have, there's what we would call preclinical evidence, which might be cellular studies or animal studies, that's suggestive that it could have anti-cancer effects. But we don't have the kind of data that would lead anyone to say it would be wise to use only cannabis extracts and not go with conventional therapy. So I think that's important to put out there because I have a lot of people come in and ask that question. You know, isn't this potentially curative? Mm-hmm. Yes, I agree. I'd like to also tap into some of your cancer wisdom and talk a little bit about some of the things that have been in the press lately, probably the biggest being how diet, of course, affects cancer risk. And I'm sure you and I both share the position of prevention being better than treatment. And, of course, the red meat issue came up, red and processed meat. And it's interesting. I was laughing when I was reading your note online because we were talking about how, oh, my goodness, there's a new report that just came out looking at red meat and how it could increase risk for cancer. And you said, yeah, you know, these these recommendations are not new. The American Institute for Cancer Research and the World Cancer Research Fund have been looking at this topic for a long time. What do you tell your patients about preventing cancer in the first place? Well, I use the recommendations that the American Institute for Cancer Research have put out based on their joint report with the World Cancer Research Fund. So I go through the information regarding being of a healthy weight, increasing physical activity, and they do have specific recommendations around red meat and processed meat. And they recommend less than 18 ounces per week of red meat as a prevention method. And also they recommend the avoidance of processed meats. And that information has been in their recommendation since 2007. Wow. What is it about meat that makes it problematic? When you heat meats in cooking, you actually create a couple of different chemical compounds that are thought to be carcinogens based on laboratory testing. And that's not something that you can really remove or cover up in any way. You know, you, you, we're going to cook meat. That's typically how it's eaten. And those things are going to be produced. I think the other piece of that is that with the processed meats, I don't know that they're entirely certain, but, you know, those have quite a lot of salt or they have the addition nitrates and nitrites. There are these types of compounds that can be formed with the protein part of the meat when these different chemical compounds are used to preserve it. And so it really has a lot to do with the chemical milieu of either having meat that's cooked or having meat that's, that's been processed with these chemical items. And I think the other thing that is being looked at still is whether the form of iron that's found in meat may somehow contributing to the cancer risk. 
Yeah. I think all of these points are so critical, and especially, as you said, you know, looking at the total diet and what we do environmentally. I want to just let our listeners know that I think that while diet and exercise are important, the environmental toxins that we face are also problematic. And I was just sharing with you before the interview that there's a wonderful organization called Beyond Pesticides that put out a publication. They have a newsletter called Pesticides and You, and the winter 2014-15 issue has a long story about pesticide use in marijuana production, what are some of the safety issues and sustainable options, and they go through the different state regulations in terms of whether or not medical cannabis is legal and what are some of the growing precautions and growing regulations in those particular states. So this is all in its infancy. We're still learning. I am so glad that you're there, not only to talk about prevention, but also to talk about using some of these alternative therapies. What can patients do who are in states that don't have legalized medical cannabis? That's a really hard question to answer, to be honest with you, because you really don't, as a healthcare practitioner, want to put anyone at risk. And if they're living in a state where it's just plain not legal, and basically it would put them at risk to suggest, for anyone to suggest that they use it, you just don't want to do that. I don't necessarily suggest to my patients that they use it. I do answer questions of them if they come and say, what about this? What do you know? What can you share? Because I think it's important that anytime they're going to make a decision like that, that they be able to do so in an informed fashion. And in a state where it's not legal, I think the important thing is to say is there's a huge risk for you to try to obtain this, and it's a risk of being arrested. I think that people can become involved at the local level with organizations that might be attempting to get their state to allow for medical use, and that might be an outlet for them, even though it doesn't give them the ability to use the product for their own relief. Mm-hmm. And what other ways can patients reduce nausea and vomiting during treatment? Ah, thank you. Therein is the worst of the dietitian in the oncology setting. So, you know, typically... We're certainly not having medical cannabis conversations with everyone, and we meet with lots of people with nausea and vomiting, and we talk with them about smaller, more frequent meals, not relying on larger meals, which can sometimes make them feel very full, and that potentially could make them feel more nausea. But also, when the stomach gets really empty during chemo or during the time period when people are getting chemo, an empty stomach can actually become a queasy or a nauseated stomach. Smaller amounts of food more frequently, you know, to prevent them from getting really, really empty can sometimes help. It also helps patients to not have foods that are very high in fat or very high in fiber, which can lead to bloating, and then sometimes that can lead to nausea. So we can help them determine good snacks or good meals or good ways to modify recipes so that they're not too high in fat or too high in fiber or talk about specific things. Sometimes people need to eat blander foods you not do things that are terribly spicy, and help them identify what's triggering them because different things will trigger different people. And the, the fact that we can take some time and sit down and talk with people is one of the benefits of having us there to be able to help them figure out what's going to work best for them. Well, Kelly, I want to thank you so much for being my guest. You've been enormously helpful, I hope, for any listeners who are dealing with the troubles that are associated with cancer and, and therapy. We have been speaking with Calais Trenum. She is a fellow registered dietitian with a specialty in oncology. And if we want more information on this, 
Calais, should we refer them to the AICR website, or is there one in particular that can give patients some tips on nausea and vomiting? I believe we have some of that information on the Oncology Nutrition Dietetics Practice Group website, which okay. is www.oncologynutrition.org. Great. I'll provide that as well, too, for our listeners. So I want to thank our listeners for joining us, and I want to thank you, Kelly, for being my guest, and remind everyone that Food Sleuth Radio is produced by Dan Hemmelgarn at KOPN Studios in beautiful downtown Columbia, Missouri. Thank you, Kelly. This has been really helpful. Oh, thank you so much for having me. 